At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Today, we spotlight one of the greatest athletes of all time, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. He's arguably the greatest basketball player of all time and was one of the great icons of my childhood. Whether it was drinking Gatorade or wearing Jordan sneakers on your feet, everyone wanted to be like Mike. Here's Matt to explain how it all happened. Today, we're going to build off our discussion of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and and race in the NBA by exploring the next great star in the league, Michael Jordan. So, So today is the story of this revolutionary athlete and his relationship with one revolutionary fitness company. Today is the story of Michael Jordan and Nike. It's the story of Air Jordan, trademark. And I want to do a few things today. I want to start by telling you the general story of Michael Jordan. I want to give you his athletic biography. But more importantly, I want to place Michael Jordan in the context of race relations in the United States. Where does Michael Jordan fit in our discussion of sport and race in this country? Jack Johnson climbed to the top of the pyramid and he challenged assumptions of white supremacy in American sports. So he changed the conversation with regard to race and sport in the United States. Jackie Robinson desegregated American team sports, and he changed the conversation. Muhammad Ali changed the conversation with his outspokenness and rebelliousness. And today I'm going to argue that Michael Jordan changed the conversation as well. So part of what we're going to do today is explore the the racial meaning of Michael Jordan. 
But like I said, I also want to place Jordan in the context of a global marketing revolution. I want to talk about how this kid from Wilmington, North Carolina, who played the sport of basketball, how he became literally the most famous person in the world. So that's a lot. So let's begin by considering Michael Jordan, the athlete. Here are the very basic facts. Michael Jeffrey Jordan was born in 1963 in Brooklyn, New York, but he grew up in North Carolina. And part of the legend of Michael Jordan is that he was a late bloomer. There is an often told story that he was cut from his high school basketball team. And I guess that's technically true. He he did not make the varsity squad as a sophomore, but he did as a junior and a senior. So I think that story is actually overblown a little bit. But Jordan was not one of the nation's most celebrated high school players. Um, But coaches at the University of North Carolina, they saw Jordan at some local basketball camps and they were just flabbergasted with his athleticism. And they convinced him to come to UNC, where he did very well. In his freshman year at the University of North Carolina, he hit the winning shot in the 1982 NCAA title game. This was against Georgetown. Jordan was an All-American his next two years in college. And then he skipped his senior year and he entered the NBA draft. This was in 1984, where he was selected third by the Chicago Bulls. There was a brief detour to play for the USA basketball team in the Summer Olympics in 1984. Uh, I will remind you, this was... 1984. So the Soviets weren't there because of the boycott and Jordan and the Americans won gold. And then Michael Jordan goes to the NBA 1984, where he immediately becomes a star in his third game in the league. He scored 37 points and he was off and running or off and jumping. Every game was a highlight reel. Every game, Michael Jordan seemed to do something basketball fans had never seen before. He was named the NBA's Rookie of the Year. In his second season, Michael Jordan's Bulls met Larry Bird's far superior Boston Celtics. The Celtics would sweep the series, but Jordan was the best player on the court. In the first two games at the Boston Garden, Jordan scored 49 and then 63 points. After game two, Larry Bird said, that wasn't Michael Jordan on the court. That was God disguised as Michael Jordan. There are two main phases to Michael Jordan's NBA career. The first phase culminated with Jordan leading the Chicago Bulls to three straight NBA titles in the early 1990s. But then Jordan shocked the sporting world by retiring from basketball to try professional baseball. This was something he did right after the murder of his father. His father was robbed and murdered at a highway rest stop along the North Carolina-South Carolina border. And James Jordan, Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan had always wanted his son, Michael, to play baseball. James Jordan was a black man from the Jackie Robinson era. Baseball was the sport for black Americans of his generation. And so to honor his father, Michael Jordan played minor league baseball for a year. He did not do especially well, though he was not terrible. But then Michael Jordan came back. He thrilled the sporting world by returning to the NBA, and he won three more titles with the Chicago Bulls, 96, 97, and 98, retiring yet again after that last championship. 
I guess he did return briefly uh, and play for the Washington Wizards. Jordan was actually treated very badly in Washington. We, we will ignore that part of the story. Add it all up. From a basketball perspective, Michael Jordan is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. He won five NBA Most Valuable Player awards. Only Kareem Abdul-Jabbar won more. He won six. But as opposed to Kareem, who was seen as the latest in a line of great NBA big men, Michael Jordan redefined our idea of what a basketball player could be and do. And he redefined how people thought about building a championship basketball team. Before Jordan, NBA teams still thought that the key to a winning team was having a dominant center, uh, a Bill Russell, a Wilt Chamberlain, a Kareem. But the two guys drafted before Jordan in 1984, they were both centers. Magic and Bird were starting to change this idea in the 1980s, but Michael Jordan will change it once and for all. Jordan changed the entire architecture of the game. He changed how people think about the game. It's with Michael Jordan that the whole idea about how to build a successful basketball team is transformed. So to sum this part up, Jordan's basketball greatness was the sum of three things. His incredible athleticism, his unparalleled work ethic, and a competitive spirit that bordered on the pathological. Michael Jordan hated to lose at anything. He, he took great offense at even the smallest slight. But every once in a while, an athlete comes along who expands our notion of what is physically possible. And Michael Jordan was definitely one of those athletes. Okay, so we have this story of Michael Jordan's amazing athletic and basketball talent, his incredible will and drive. In just a purely sporting sense, he was a revolutionary athlete. But the key to Michael Jordan's transition from American basketball star to global icon is his relationship with the American shoe company, Nike. We talked a little while ago about the new strenuosity, the, the physical fitness revolution that began in the late 1960s and then surged in the 1970s and 80s. One of the companies looking to capitalize on the new strenuosity was a small Oregon shoe company called Nike. Nike was founded in Oregon in the 1960s by two people. One was the University of Oregon track coach, Bill Bowerman. He was the guy who wrote that 1967 book, Jogging. We, we talked about him a little while ago. But the entrepreneurial brains behind Nike was Phil Knight. Phil Knight had been a distance runner at the University of Oregon, coached by Bowerman. And then as a business student at Stanford, he became consumed with the idea of, of selling a lighter, more comfortable running shoe. So Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, they created Blue Ribbon Sports. That was the name first. And Phil Knight would travel to Japan and he would bring Japanese running shoes back to Oregon, where he would actually sell them out of the trunk of his car. But then Knight and Bowerman had an idea for a shoe of their own. They literally poured melted rubber into a waffle maker, making a light rubber-based waffle sole and they began making their shoes with these waffle soles. And people started to buy these shoes. 
1971, they renamed the company Nike after the Greek goddess of victory. So if you are wearing Nikes, you are wearing shoes named after a girl. Just pointing that out to all the macho men out there. That same year, 1971, Phil Knight paid a college design student $35 to create a logo for the company. She came up with what soon became known as the swoosh. Phil Knight told her, I don't love it, but maybe it will grow on me. Now it is one of the world's most recognized symbols. In the 1970s, Nike enjoyed moderate success, and they started making basketball shoes, too. But Nike was really just one shoe company among many. What Nike was looking for was a transcendent athlete, an athlete who would be a walking or running or maybe jumping billboard for their shoes. And in the mid-1980s, Michael Jordan would end up being that athlete. The first pair of shoes for this revolutionary athlete were themselves revolutionary. They were red and black Air Jordans. The NBA had a rule back then that a player's shoes had to match those of his teammates in color. And the Chicago Bulls wore shoes that had a white base. So the NBA told Jordan, you cannot wear those colorful shoes. If you do, we will fine you $5,000 a game. Nike told Jordan, wear the shoes We'll pay the fines. This was brilliant publicity. Next, they embarked on an ambitious and creative marketing campaign for the shoes. This was a campaign that featured the independent filmmaker Spike Lee. He asked the rhetorical question, it's got to be the shoes. Nike sales soared in the United States. Next, Nike went overseas, as did the NBA. Because of the growth of satellite television and fiber optic cables that made the World Wide Web possible, both the NBA and Nike were able to advertise their products around the globe. Europe was the first market that Nike and the NBA went after. This was in the late 1980s. Then came Japan. And then came the mother of all markets, China, where Jordan's Chicago Bulls were known as the Red Oxen. There are over 1 billion people in China, by my calculation, that's over 2 billion feet. That is a lot of Nikes. And by the mid-1990s, Nike, the company, they were pulling in $4 billion in annual revenues, making a net profit of $600 million. And though long retired from basketball, Michael Jordans, to this day, he earns well over $100 million a year in Nike revenue. It was and continues to be an amazing business success story, a company and their transcendent athlete as Pitchman. After the break, Republicans wear sneakers too. Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing what he did and when he did it, playing transcendent basketball at the dawn of the global media and advertising revolution. Michael Jordan, he was just the the perfect athlete at the perfect time. And everyone loved him. White kids, black kids, brown kids, whatever, boys and girls, they were all drawn to Jordan. According to the jingle of a 1992 Gatorade commercial, they all wanted to be like Mike. Michael Jordan is African-American. If we are going to define people by their race, that's his race, black. But looking at it from a wide angle viewpoint of our course, Michael Jordan is really the first superstar black athlete who was able to construct a public image of himself in which race was not a central part of that image. To go back to the athletes I mentioned at the beginning and athletes we've talked about in this course, In the turn of the century white mind, Jack Johnson was the black menace, right? He was white America's racial nightmare. Joe Lewis, who positioned himself as the anti-Jack Johnson, well, he was the brown bomber, a reference to the color of his skin. You, You could never forget that. But you had to think of Jackie Robinson in terms of his race. After all, that's the burden of the trailblazer. His race is why he was so significant. There was Muhammad Ali, who made race central to his identity. He wanted everyone to know that he was black and beautiful. And even Magic Johnson, who came right before Jordan and was for many years a contemporary of Jordan's. Though Magic did not talk in terms of race, there was always a racial aspect to Magic Johnson because he was always being compared to Larry Bird and Larry Bird's whiteness. I suppose one could argue that a guy named O.J. Simpson did this to an extent first. 
Simpson was a charismatic California football player with a you know, good looks and a winning smile. And he moved into white neighborhoods. He married a white woman and he made commercials representing big American companies like Hertz Rent-A-Car. When he was in college at Southern Cal in 1968, O.J. Simpson famously refused to align himself with Dr. Harry Edwards and the revolt of the black athlete. He said he wanted nothing to do with the racial identity politics of that era. And certainly, O.J. continued to think of himself as having moved beyond the confines of any racial category. He once famously responded to a reporter who asked him about being black in America by saying, I'm not black. I'm OJ. But then, of course, came his arrest in 1994 for double murder. Uh, And OJ lawyers, they framed their entire defense, a successful defense, around the idea that though he might be famous, he was just another black man being harassed by the LAPD. I mean, with OJ, it ended up being all about race. So I recognize that Jordan may not be the absolute first here. But the argument that Jordan's biographers and and sports commentators like to make about Jordan is that his popularity was so stratospheric, I mean, so much more than OJ's ever was, that Michael Jordan transcended race. And when people make this argument about transcending race, they are not saying that one looks at Jordan and can no longer tell if he's black or white. You know, all I see is gray, whatever that means. It's not that. It's just that race was not Jordan's primary marker of identity, which is really saying something in the context of what we've been talking about in this course. When asked to describe Michael Jordan, Americans probably would not have started by saying that he's a black basketball player. They they just would say he's an amazing basketball player. It would not have been about race. Another way of defining Jordan's racial significance, he was a crossover. He was an athlete who appealed to black and white Americans, to all Americans. The color of his skin did not limit his popularity with anyone. But there is an important point to make here. One of the reasons that so many Americans found Jordan so compelling and so likable, one of the reasons he was able perhaps to transcend race, if such a thing is possible, was that Michael Jordan consciously avoided political issues, especially political issues revolving around the issue of race. This attitude was very famously exhibited in 1990 when Michael Jordan was asked by his college coach, UNC's Dean Smith. He was asked to endorse the Democrat who was running for the U.S. Senate from North Carolina, Harvey Gantt. Gantt was the mayor of Charlotte, and a longtime civil rights activist. Harvey Gantt was African-American. And he was running against the Republican Jesse Helms, a man who had been a vocal segregationist and someone who many believed had disdain for the African-American community. So Dean Smith, who was a principled and political person, he asked Michael Jordan to take a stand and endorse Harvey Gantt against Jesse Helms. And Jordan refused. When asked why not, one of his biographers tells us that Jordan explained his silence by saying, because Republicans buy sneakers too. And Michael Jordan recently admitted that he did indeed make that statement, though though he says he was joking when he said it. But let the record show, he also said he was not interested in publicly endorsing Harvey Gantt. 
Michael Jordan received a lot of criticism for his silence, criticism for not taking a stand on what many considered to be an important issue in his home state and criticized especially because the reason he gave was that he did not want to damage Nike sales. So as critics saw it, this was a, an economic decision to be apolitical. It was, they said, a selfish decision not to endorse Gantt. But let me place this argument or disagreement in a timeline. Michael Jordan is of the post-civil rights generation. You know, he was born in 1963, but he came of age, so to speak, in the late 70s and the early 80s. So he was not of the generation of protests and marches, you know, integration fights, sit-ins and boycotts. He was of the next generation, a generation that was poised to capitalize on the gains made by the protest generation. And when I say capitalize, I suppose I mean that in both a general sense and an economic sense. This post-civil rights generation was very aware of what had just happened. They were aware of the struggles that Black Americans had been through. And for some then, as they saw it, it was their duty to live the American dream, to go as far as they could, to make as much money as they could. Again, it was almost their obligation to capitalize on the gains that the previous generation had made. I mean, this is what success means in America. But the other way of thinking about it was to say that you had to be true to those who came before you. You had to be true to your elders and never forget the racial struggle, never forget what others had literally died for. I think that those two ways of thinking, you know, should you buy in or should you never sell out? I think those two ways of thinking about the post-civil rights era, I think they frame the way that people reacted to Michael Jordan. Jordan was involved in another controversy in 1992, and it's a story I think worth telling, as it's maybe the second most famous Olympic medal stand story in American history, second, of course, to Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968. And so for that story, we go to Barcelona, the city in which, if all goes according to plan, I will retire in 15 years. I, I love Barcelona. The Barcelona Summer Olympics in 1992, they're notable for a couple of reasons. First, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union disintegrated in the early 1990s and was now 14 independent nations. So the American-Soviet tensions that had fueled the games for half a century, they were now gone. But second, these Olympics are notable because they saw the debut of professional athletes. For the 1992 Olympics, the IOC voted to allow professionals to compete in all the sports at the Olympics. Well, actually not boxing. That, that was one of the exceptions. And nowhere did the ending of the amateur-only rule change the competitions more than in basketball. And this takes us to the phenomenon of the Dream Team. The Dream Team was the name given to the American NBA superstars who agreed to represent the United States here in Barcelona in 1992. Among the dream teamers were Magic and Bird, and always together those two. Bird was way past his prime and suffering from a very bad back. He, he barely played. Magic was back from a brief retirement brought on by the fact that he had HIV. There was Michael Jordan, the most famous person in the world. And there was Charles Barkley, 
who for my money was the most underrated player on the team. Uh, Barkley was an amazing basketball player, as well as the, the court jester and, and spokesperson for this team. It was here in Barcelona that Barkley provided us with one of the immortal lines in modern American sport. The opening game for the U.S. was against the African nation of Angola, and a reporter asked Charles Barkley what he knew about Angola. Barkley said, I don't know nothing about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. Truer words have never been spoken. Angola lost 116 to 48, and it wasn't even that close. And this was how it went all tournament. The Dream Team won their games by an average of 44 points. They won by 32 in the final. The head coach, Chuck Daly, he did not call a timeout in the entire tournament. Never had to. The only moment of tension came during the medal ceremony when Michael Jordan staged a protest. And his protest had nothing to do with politics. He was not speaking out against racism or poverty, injustice or war. Michael Jordan was protesting his sweatsuit. Specifically, he was objecting to the fact that the American team was required to wear warm-ups that were manufactured by Reebok. Jordan was a Nike man. I mean, he was the Nike man. And when the United States Olympic Committee made it clear that Jordan had to wear the Reebok warm-ups if he wanted to be on the medal stand, Jordan strongly considered boycotting the medal ceremony. In the end, a compromise, uh, a solution was this. Michael Jordan took an American flag and he draped it over his shoulder and down his hip. And that flag covered the Reebok logo. Some thought that this was an unpatriotic use of the flag. Every bit as unpatriotic, they said, as Smith and Carlos raising their fists in 1968. Others bemoaned the fact that we had gone from Smith and Carlos, a, a principled stand against racial injustice, to a stand in the name of a massive corporation. You know, if this is what transcending race is all about, critics said, then who wants to transcend race? But for some, the fact that Jordan could amass such a fortune and he was able to focus on his commercial brand this itself was a sign of progress. You know, some people said Tommy Smith and John Carlos did that so Michael Jordan could do this. And I'll add to this just a little bit. When we think about the phenomenon of black power, we often tend to reduce it to that, you know, things like that 1968 snapshot of raised fists and protest and raised fists was very much part of the black power phenomenon. But black power advocates wanted, they, they demanded a piece of the pie. They wanted access to the lucrative American economic system. And now Michael Jordan had that access in a big way. And so here he was protecting his brand. And thinking of it this way, this moment in 1992 might also be seen as a statement of black power. Michael Jordan's take? When asked about this moment, Jordan said this, the American dream is standing up for what you believe in. And if I offended anyone, that's too bad. In other words, I believe in Nike and that's my right. And if you don't like it, well, I'm Michael Jordan and you're not. 
That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, Mia Hamm and the World of Women's Soccer. School of Humans. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.